Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Well, grace and peace to you. It's wonderful to be here uh, this morning. We're beginning a new sermon series uh, before I go on sabbatical. So I have about six weeks. I'm just going to toss a grenade and then run. And so... um, This is going to be how not to blow up your faith or how how to keep faith deconstruction from being faith detonation. It's going to be good. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Thomas. What what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. I don't know if I like that moniker. Um, maybe grieving Thomas, wounded Thomas. Uh, in popular lingo today, deconstructing Thomas, evolving Thomas. Uh, scripture doesn't call him any of those things. Scripture calls him Didymus, or in our translation, Uh, The twin. And I think that's fitting. Because we all, at one time or another, find ourselves in Thomas's shoes. Uh, This is certainly the case in our increasingly post-Christian, pluralistic world. I know a lot of people who are struggling with their faith right now. I get it. In some ways, it's been a perfect storm, hasn't it? Uh, The last two election cycles, the social unrest and deep pain and division that we see in our country, the violence that's so prevalent in our world, 
the isolation that we've experienced from the pandemic. And so all the, we have all these questions now and the only conversation partner are our podcasts. Um, but my guess is that the pandemic just accelerated questions that were already there. What do we do with the suffering that leaves us at the end of our rope? How do we go back to church when church is the thing that hurt me? And when me and my podcasts are doing just fine, what do I do with the shame that I feel being a part of the church? because of the damage that I perceive that it's done. What about the Bible? It's weird. What do we do with it? Um, These are all questions that I hope to lob your way before I run and leave you to send all of your emails to victor at gracepca.com. Um, But let's start with Thomas. I think it's a good place to start because it challenges a church that's scared of doubt and it challenges a culture that's scared of belief. First, Thomas challenges a culture that's scared of doubt. Uh, Jesus had appeared to the other disciples. We didn't read this portion of the text, Uh, he had appeared like vision from the Marvel comics, like walked into the room, and there proclaimed, peace be to you, I'm risen. Uh, But Thomas wasn't there, and we don't know where Thomas was. Uh, Crystal, our worship leader, likes to believe that he was out to get tacos for the rest of the disciples. And what a time to get tacos, because you just miss Jesus. And you come in, and they say, we just met the risen Lord. And uh, what do you say to that? Well, I'll tell you what he said. He said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails... And place my finger into the marks of the nails. And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. That's how Thomas responded. I wonder if that response would fly in most of our churches. Unless I... I will never believe. I've attended more church services than I can count and sat through a whole bunch of mediocre church-based small groups and good ones. (laughs) (laughs) And I can count on one hand the number of times I've heard doubt addressed head-on like that. But I've heard, as a pastor, story upon story of those riddled with silent doubt who are unable to find a place to bring it out into the open. 
And so often they walk out the door and take the doubt conversation somewhere other than the church. I wonder if our community has the space to be as honest as Thomas was. I wonder if we honor one another and trust God enough to let our questions fill the air before we puncture gut-level questions with oversimplified head-level answers. I wonder if the Bible makes more room for God to meet with people in the midst of doubt than the communities formed by that same Bible. And more importantly, what do we make of a God who, spoiler alert, met Jesus or met Thomas in his doubt? And tenderly, once again, like the vision, comes into the locked room and says, Peace be to you. And then takes his hand and says, Everything that you wanted, see the marks, see the scars, put your fingers in. Everything that Thomas asked for, he was given. If you read the text, what do you make of that? There's actually not a post-resurrection story that doesn't include doubt. The road to Emmaus, you have those two jokers moving symbolically away from Jerusalem, the place of faith. And then Jesus comes up and has disguised himself somehow and walks with them for a while and makes himself eventually present in the most awesome Bible study that likely there ever was. And at the end of that story, uh, they're running back to Jerusalem, symbolically the place of faith. Even the Great Commission. Oh, the Great Commission where Jesus gathers his disciples again on the Mount of Olives Uh, We heard about it last week, right? And he says to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We know that part. When Jesus gives the keys to his everlasting kingdom to his apprentices. We, we memorized that part. We could all get it, kind of. <laughs> um, but, we never, but we never talk about what it says right before Jesus says this. It's so amazing to me. This is the, this is the verse right beforehand. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped But some doubted. But some doubted. To a group that included some men and women full of belief and hope and others riddled with doubt and uncertainty, Jesus says, here's my name, here's my reputation, here's my power, here's the kingdom, and it's yours, all of yours. Give it to the world now. What does that tell you about the heart of a God that he puts the keys of the kingdom 
into the hands of people who were sometimes less than certain. That he looks the doubter in the eyes and says, not at some future point, when every intellectual quibble is sorted out and every question is answered, but right in the middle of your doubt, I come to you, I trust you, I say peace be to you, my presence within you, and I send you. Apparently, Jesus was a lot more comfortable with doubt than our churches are. And you may say, yeah, but really isn't doubt bad? Don't we have passages like in the book of James that says the person who doubts is double-minded? And I would say, yeah, I can, I've seen that happen too. But the book of Jude tells us to be merciful to those who doubt. And it implies that the doubters are among us, and when you meet them, you are meant to be more than kind. That if you, we don't treat the doubters and protesters and deconstructors in our midst as a problem, and we're glad because we'll all be in those shoes at some point. We treat them as a gift from the living God. Here's the thing. The church needs the doubts. The church needs the questions. The church needs the protests. In the end, they deepen our faith as they send us back to the Scriptures to get better answers than the ones we were handing the people. They purify our witness These days, the reason people are leaving the church is because what they've seen the church become and the wounds they carry. All that to say there's a good type of deconstruction and there's a need for it in every generation. Good deconstruction is when we realize that something in our life and in the life of our faith that we believe about Jesus is not Jesus. And we say, this has got to change. This is, this is wrong. I need to search the Bible again to see what it really says. That's good deconstruction. Those moments when we see the things that do not reflect God's heart in our lives or in our community, and we have the guts to say, I'm going to undo that aspect in order that we can follow God more fully. That's what I see people up to. People angry at, the, at, the, at the, the low view of women in the church or the proliferation of harmful purity cultures or the marriage of white right-wing politics to the kingdom of God or the marriage of uncritically embraced progressive ideologies with the kingdom of God. It's the instinct that was in Jesus himself who made a radical critique of the religious leaders of his day and used the Bible to deconstruct their crazy understandings of the Bible. You have heard it said, but I say to you. It's the deconstruction of the prophets who, while everybody was doing all the religious practices, they were disregarding the poor. 
They didn't have hearts that reflected the heart of their father. And so they, you know, they rip them a new one. (laughs) Good deconstruction critiques bad readings of the Bible. Uh, And it makes us look more like Jesus. And so we need, like Jesus, to not only to embrace with compassion the doubts, uh, but we need, like the prophets, to have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. If we don't come out of this, that was my weekly screen report popping up on my iPad there. (laughs) That was a text from my mom saying, you're doing great on your sermon. She's streaming online. Hey, Ma. It's good to see you. She texts me almost every week, and this is how sweet my mother is, and says, that was the best sermon I have ever heard. She's a good mom. Okay. Uh, But if, so we're challenging the church, but we're also challenging the culture. Because if the church is scared of doubt, our culture is scared of belief. Our post-Christian culture is at least equally afraid of faith and belief. After all, uh, doubt is much more fashionable. Doubt costs you very little. Doubt is thought of as inherently intelligent, thoughtful, and respectable, while belief is usually lumped in with categories like narrow-minded, gullible, and inconsiderate. Sometimes we're cynical and skeptical because we're scared of conviction and commitment uh, because of how those things have failed us. We've just been wore down with light Uh, with life, and we're tired of disappointment. Uh, Disappointment from the people and projects and institutions we've followed in the past, but haven't lived up to their promise. And as a result, we stop wanting to open ourselves up to the vulnerability of faith and the vulnerability of hope. Hope is a vulnerable thing. Because to hope is to open yourself up to disappointment. It's much safer to doubt and to criticize and to dismiss. And to build up scar tissue from our frustrations. We don't want to expose ourselves to hurt anymore. And cynicism is a great way to protect ourselves from the possibility of being let down. So you get older, you experience more disappointment and pain, broken promises become the the norm instead of hoping and dreaming, and our childlike faith in the goodness of God can die a thousand deaths in that climate. Not necessarily making us faithless, but hopeless, wonderless, disenchanted. We can see it in Thomas's response, I will never. He wasn't naturally skeptical. He was hurting 
he was confused. Life on his own terms hadn't been enough. That's why he risked everything on Jesus in the first place. But how can he be the king of an everlasting kingdom of peace when he's in a casket? I just have sympathy for Thomas. People don't rise from the dead. The the notion of resurrection isn't exactly easy to believe. And it wasn't somehow easier for people who lived in the first century. Of course it wasn't. And so he says, I'm, that's great for y'all that you had some shared experience because you were so hungry, but I brought the tacos. <laughs> and uh, I know what's real. I'm too hurt to hope, y'all. Can't be. Prove it. Cue Instagram deconversion photo. Mountains in background thoughtful, pensive look with some poetry that was ripped off of somebody else's deconversion photo about how you're evolving. Except that's not what happened. That's what would happen in our culture. That's not what happened here. Thomas's journey led him to renewed belief. At the end, this disenchanted guy is on his knees saying, my Lord and my God. And he goes on from here to serve the Lord. Do you guys know where he was a missionary? Anybody? India. India. You can still meet the Thomas Christians in India 2,000 years later who still bear this name of this disenchanted but now rebuilt hopeful disciple. What happened to Thomas. How did he move from doubt to belief? Well, I kind of want to spend six weeks talking about how that happened, but I'm going to give you a few right now. And the first thing is that he was willing to be patient. Look at what it says. There's three words there in in verse 26 that would frustrate you if you were Thomas. What's it say? Eight days later. Let's say it all together. Eight days later. Why did he make him wait eight days? Who knows? Jesus doesn't show up for Thomas for a week. And why I think that's important is because when you're going through doubt and deconstruction, it can feel like forever. Uh, But Dallas Willard, this is a great quote. This is like the quote that you take away and cherish in your heart and think about all day. He said, from time to time, God actually allows us to stew in our doubts because it makes us people worthy of truth. That somehow in the waiting, we become people of depth and substance. It's like dry farming. I've never done dry farming. This is like when the pastor looks up the illustrations for the sermon. It's like dry farming. Um, 
If you've ever grown grape seeds, I haven't. This is what they tell me on the sites that give me the illustrations. <laughs> a look behind the curtain at how, <laughs> how the sausage is made. <laughs> you don't artificially water the plants, apparently, because when you artificially water grapes, the roots only stay at the surface where the water is. And so you have to let it get dry so those, those roots run deep. And what we need to do and with our questions is embrace the tension and the quietness and sometimes the silence of God and to see our questions and that silence as opportunities to let our roots go really deep down. Needless to say, we are an impatient people, and we find it hard to wait. Uh, The churches in the New Testament were forced to grow deep roots. Uh, In his book, After Doubt, which is a wonderful book by A.J. Swoboda, he, he brought this to my attention. I've never thought about this before, but if you were a part of the church in the first century, you were part of a little house church in Rome or something, and you had some doubts that caused some real questions for you. You know what you had to do? You had to write a letter to the apostle and send it. You know how long it took for a letter to get to the apostle if it ever got there at all? Maybe a year. And then they had to write something back. And somebody had to traverse a continent to get you the question that you asked about sexuality. We see that in 1 Corinthians. People were asking questions like, should we get married? And then they had to send, how long was it before they got the answer to that? That they were like, I still not married. I don't know what the apostle has to say. Think about this. They just, what did they do? They prayed. They would debate. They'd disagree together and talk and wrestle with their questions and read the Old Testament. And eventually, hopefully, a letter from Paul or Peter or John or whoever would eventually arrive and the answer would come, but not for a long time. And this is what Swoboda says about this. It's so good. He says, uh, why is this important for Christian formation? Because beautiful things happen in the in-between. History teaches us that the theological problems the church faced were met with patience, perseverance, community, prayer, and trust. Our earliest theology was done patiently. This process of sending expensive letters uh, at the risk of personal harm and then waiting months, even years for a response, while difficult, no doubt, I believe had a powerful effect on the early Christians. They couldn't get fast answers. This whole process forced the church to its knees in prayer and to deep dialogue with one another. The waiting pushed them towards one another and towards God, and they became a theologically patient people. He goes on and says, We no longer have any need to wait for theological answers or to pray patiently 
or to endure painstaking dialogue with other members of the church who may disagree with us. We no longer need to be patient for the long-awaited voice of God through prayer. We get our answers immediately. We rush to podcasts, books, or quick texts for answers. Man, we YouTube it. Rather than dig into the real, the blood, the guts, the problems of actual life in a community of human worshipers, we replace it with digital environments that allow us to validate our doubts without needing to confess them to others who can bear them with us. Our modern existence is not set up for any kind of patient prayer that waits for the answers over a lifetime. Guys, some of these questions are answered over a lifetime and not in our life. You can't answer the deepest questions about life and sexuality and human bodies and suffering and doubt in a long-form article. Or even when you binge the podcast, you went from the first one all the way through. Some things take a whole lifetime to learn. What else does he say? Our modern existence is not set up for any kind of patient prayer. Rather, we can have all the answers without having to form the character that can handle them. He was willing... Eight days. Sometimes it's longer. And he didn't just wait eight days. He waited with the believing community. They believed he didn't. And yet, eight days later, his disciples were inside. This is the, this is the most wonderful thing in the passage. And Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them. He didn't believe and he was still with them. I, as a pastor, have watched friends in the church over the years grow disappointed and skeptical, often for very understandable reasons. But instead of remaining in the believing community and sharing their unbelief, the gift of their questions with us, the instinct is to withdraw and find safety among others with a matching disappointment or skepticism. And that observation has become a source of grief to me because building a community around doubt always feels comforting at first, but it's isolating in the end. It quickly delivers a sense of honest, uh, living, embodied camaraderie, but relationships built on a shared disagreement a shared skepticism and disenchantment are ultimately unsatisfying. They become vaguely about what you're all against, but you're not really for anything in the end. It feels good to find other people who say, yeah, I feel the same way, but more often than not, these relationships do little more than give us permission to sit in our doubt, to stay in the place, to stop searching for answers, and we start changing the subject. 
Communities that affirm you without challenging you will make you feel comfortable, but they'll never move you one way or the other. Thomas could have walked away. He could have written a book. How Jesus disappointed me and hurt me, and this is my story. And he could have gathered a small group of people to read that book. And they say, I know that story. I have that story too. And all the while, eight days later, Jesus would have showed up and he would have missed it. Maybe the most courageous act found anywhere in the Gospels by someone named other than Jesus was Thomas going back to the believing community. Because that can be hard. And notice there that it wasn't the believers that answered the doubts. It was the presence of Jesus found in the midst of the gathering community that were the answer to the doubts. The fellowship wasn't there to answer the questions. It was there to hold him until the risen Jesus finally appeared. That's what churches do. They keep believing when others can't. So he was patient, he was with his believing friends, and finally, it was the question he asked. Notice when he doesn't, he doesn't believe, he doesn't ask to see Jesus' hair, <laughs> or his power, or his glory. He doesn't ask to see him riding on a cloud or throwing thunderbolts. He asks to see his scars. That's what matters to Thomas. He was driven by the question, can God bring life out of the midst of death? He wanted to see death's scars on a living Christ. And that was the only question that really mattered to him. And so the more I've thought about Thomas's words, the more beautiful they seem to me. And what they reveal about Thomas is not that he did not get it, but that he did get it. He wasn't caving to a heart of doubt. He was clinging to a heart of belief that maybe God could do something with scars. Maybe he could take them into the grave and out the other side to a living place. Maybe he could make all the sad things come untrue. Maybe there could be something good and redemptive at the end of this world that would change everything, that would make it all seem worth it. Maybe God could bring life into this world of death. And then there's this moment of incredible intimacy when, when Jesus asked Thomas to, to put his fingers in his scars to reach out and touch them. I don't know if you guys have scars on your body. I have a couple. When I was in elementary school, I fell asleep during class holding a pencil and it jammed me right in the eye. I got a scar right there. Along with a piece of lead, I think that will never leave. What scars do you have? <laughs> um, but have you ever let a child, if you have a scar, have you ever let a, a child or grandchild or friend touch that scar? It's an intimate thing for someone to touch a wound that you have. He says, I'll, Jesus says, I want you to see my scar. I want you to touch it. And he's saying, I know you were waiting for a savior who would bear death. I know you're waiting for a savior who would enter the world of death and provide hope. And I want you to know that I am that savior. 
I am. I am. Touch it. See it. Feel it. Thomas, I want you to know something. These scars, in them life abides. In these scars, despite these scars. And Thomas felt those scars. And you know what he would have felt? Not death, life. Warmth. Vitality. Incontestable life. The one who was wounded so that one day all of our pain would come to an end. And he, I'm, I'm imagining at that point he looked forward to the day when he thought he would see Jesus face to face. That time when we will see Jesus face to face is the time when all of our theology will come tumbling down as he wipes the, the tears away from our eyes with the scars on his hands and he will say, I told you so. This is better than you could ever possibly imagine. Heaven will be the great deconstruction and rebuilding project of the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm sure Thomas still had his doubts, but his greatest questions were answered. And so, beloved, don't confuse faith for certainty. Bring your questions that really matter. Be patient. Bring them into the community. We'll continue to believe and pray on our knees with whole hearts that the risen Jesus would every once in a while pop his head into the room by his spirit and say, peace be with you. I told you so. I'm here. I'm risen indeed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, as we continue or as we begin this journey, I know, just know that there's a lot of people with a lot of questions about life and faith and the Bible and the church. And I pray that we can be a church that can walk alongside pilgrims uh, and with whole hearts try to, try to hold one another up and bear one another's burdens, even when those burdens are doubts. Uh, but Lord, let's not get it twisted. What we really need is your presence. What we really need is to meet the risen Christ again, to, 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 to see what he can do with death and scars and defeat uh, and death, to sense his presence and his goodness with him. Because if we have the presence of Jesus, I promise we'll be on our knees like Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, send me. For all those with a faith that's like a little flame about ready to go out, would you tend to it tenderly in this season, Lord Christ? We give you peace. We give you blessing. We receive the peace you give us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.